you to have been Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening in whatever time zone it is that you are listening to this podcast. Welcome to episode number 11 of Off the Shelf, a podcast that looks at what it means to be a true follower of Jesus in the context of scripture and the message of William Branham. My co-host, Brian Lynch, is traveling today, so won't be joining us. However, with us today on Off the Shelf is Carrie Ann Zivich. Carrie Ann grew up in the message and has been exposed to just about as much weirdness as is possible to experience amongst the followers of William Branham. I should note that not everyone that follows William Branham has experienced what Carrie Ann has. I certainly haven't, but the fringe elements are definitely there. Carrie Ann, welcome to Off the Shelf. Thanks, Rod. Glad to be a part of this work. Most message believers tend to be raised under one, perhaps two churches their entire lives with visiting the occasional camp meeting or listening to the occasional visiting pastor. My story is a bit different as the longest I've ever lived in one place was about four years. So if anyone can speak about the massive doctrinal differences between each and every message church and why message churches five minutes apart don't even fellowship together, because of a difference in quote selection, I think I might have the experience to do so. And that's exactly why I want to talk to Kirian. I knew that there were some weird offshoots in the message, but I didn't rarely ever get to see them up close. So let's get started with the question we ask everyone off the bat. How did you come into the message? Well, I was born in California and I was raised in the message where my dad was a part of the prison ministry at the time. He held church in our home until I was about four years old. My father then claimed God told him to move to the Philippines and be a missionary. So he sold his successful business and everything we owned and moved our family. My mother, myself, and my two older brothers to a third world country where we spent the next nine and a half years of my life spreading the message and building churches. He built and worked with several churches over those years while my mother witnessed to everyone she met about William Branham. Our lives revolved around the message. I grew up with a love of truth and of reading my Bible and had read through it several times by the time I was 10. I loved the message because I thought it was truth and had never even thought twice about questioning anything I was taught. I mean, who questions anything your parents teach you? You don't think they would t- teach you lies. That's exactly right. So do you ever recall hearing anything that you thought was contrary to scripture? I do remember hearing William Brenham say how a baby in the womb was just a bunch of jerking muscles. And I wondered how in the world that was possible when John the Baptist received the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb and jumped for joy upon hearing the news of Jesus' conception. I believe that was the first question I ever put on the shelf, as we like to say. And if you think about it logically, that would condone abortion if a baby is just a bunch of jerking muscles while in the womb, not really kicking and not really responding to outside stimuli, as has been proven by science, and doesn't have life in it until it takes its first breath, that would condone abortion. I agree, Carrie Ann. And uh, it's clear to me that William Branham's teaching on the subject explains why message ministers rarely speak out about the terrible crime of abortion. However, the Bible's clear that William Branham's teachings are wrong. In Isaiah 49.1, we read, Before I was born, the Lord called me, Isaiah wrote. And Jeremiah said this in um, chapter 1, verse 5, Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Dehumanization, which results in untold murders, is going on all around us, from abortion 
to doctor-assisted suicides, which are happening here in Canada. Wouldn't a real prophet have seen that coming? Anyways, getting back to your story, Carrie Ann, what was it like for you growing up in the message? Well, my father had the entire library of Brenham tapes and books in our guest bedroom on our wall. It took up literally the entire wall. Wow. And he listened to tapes practically all day and all night. They were constantly playing. As soon as it went off, he'd put another one in, turn it over. It was constantly playing. He had no life outside of reading his Bible, reading the message, listening to tapes, talking about the message, and praying. That's all I remember of him growing up. My mother, on the other hand, couldn't get through two minutes of talking to someone without witnessing to them or telling them about William Brown. <laughs> Speaking the word was a topic with much weight in our household. And by the age of seven, I had always wanted a baby sister. I was praying one day in my room and I spoke the word, so to speak, that my mother would get pregnant on a certain day and she would have a baby girl. She did, in fact, get pregnant on that very day but had a miscarriage five months later, and it was a girl. I believe God was honoring my faith, but it wasn't in his will for my mother to have another child, as that child would have had a horrible life. (laughs) These kind of supernatural things would happen to me throughout life, with God answering directly and indirectly things I thought I'd never get through, and truly could not have gotten through had it not been for his grace. I had a very difficult time as a child, and being born a girl in the message because of what William Brenham taught that women belonged in the kitchen and not in an office. I often recall praying to God to take my life many, many times. My father used all our money building churches and letting people borrow money. And by the third year we were in the Philippines, we ran out of money and my mother had to get a job at a shoe store and we made crafts to, uh, to sell. And we actually ended up begging for money, sending out envelopes um, on buses to have money to buy food. And uh, so that was a very difficult childhood because all because my dad forgot he had a family and he was too busy spreading the message. It took precedence over his family. Yeah, that's, 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 that's really difficult. And I know in the more, I guess you call it legalistic flavors of the message, women are treated like second class citizens often. Did you feel that way? I did. I always felt shafted because my brothers got everything and I got cut out of everything. I actually have a photo where my oldest brother has a big boat, a toy, and my second brother has a smaller boat and I had nothing. Wow. Wow. That's <laughs> so just... that, that was, I was a girl and girls are worthless, you know, pretty much. So my father's reason. That's certainly not the way I treated uh, my wife or my, my daughter. Yeah. She's, she's, she's my princess, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't get this. I don't get how men can do that. But anyways, I do realize that that does happen in a number of situations. I, I've just, I've heard it from so many women how, you know, they're just mistreated because of William Brenham's quotes about women and the, de- the degradation of women. But my father's reasoning for this was that my husband would support me. So I didn't need any money. I didn't need anything. I would just get married and my husband would be my provider. So when we moved to Florida years later, he split his business four ways between my parents and my two brothers, cut me out of ownership completely and only paid me minimum wage to answer phones in the office. While I sat back and watched my brothers blow their money, 
I wished that I had been born a boy because the life of a girl in the message was like a curse to me. I was never allowed to do anything and got the least of everything while the boys could live a seemingly normal life and fit in with everyone else, not having to worry about being called Amish. Being a girl in skirts, I stuck out like a sore thumb because I went to public school when we moved to Florida. I never felt like part of the family and they wouldn't pay to send me to college because again, my husband was supposed to support me and it was seen as a waste. I was raised to be a housewife, as I'm sure most message women are. <laughs> well, again, that's not in my books. Uh, you know, I always looked at women who were kind of sitting around waiting to get married. And I've, I told some of them, it's such a waste. Why don't you go do something valuable with your life? And some of them would look at me funny and um, say, you really don't know what you're talking about. But I couldn't see the point in it. Yeah, I actually ended up having to cultivate my own hobby of web design, and I actually ended up making something of it without college, um, and I ended up working for a company, several companies doing web design. So regardless of my parents' lack of support for college, I still made something out of that and was working. And in fact, while living in California... I was rebuked by a missionary on Facebook who lived in Ohio because I had a job. <laughs> Mind you, this was before I was married. So um, I wasn't, I guess I wasn't allowed to um, do anything but cook dinner <laughs> and pee in the kitchen. I asked him if he would prefer I lived under a bridge. He had no answer. Ironically, William Brenham's own wife had several jobs outside of the home, and yet he strongly condemned women working outside the home on tape. He certainly did not live what he preached. Yeah, it's really clear that in many areas, William Branham said one thing and then did another, which I guess brings me to another question. Was the message totally clear to you or were you ever confused by what was taught? Did you understand most of it having grown up in it? Well, as a child, my father would one month say television was the devil and the next month be watching all the episodes of Lois and Clark, The Adventures of Superman. Looking back on his lack of consistency, I now see that he got his model of how to act from being so immersed in a message that was preached one way by William Brenham and yet lived another way. You could ask 10 ministers what William Brenham's position was on a specific topic, and you'd get 10 different perspectives and contradictory quotes. One message tells you Christmas is evil, and then the next message, he's talking about bringing a home, bringing home a tree for his little kitties. Exactly. Our listeners might want to do a search on Google for the article which Rebecca Smith wrote in the Only Believe magazine about her dad, William Branham, brought home a tree every single year and they would exchange presents. But when he preached, he adopted the Jehovah's Witness stance against celebrating Christmas, which is not the only thing that William Branham adopted from the Jehovah's Witness movement. His doctrine that Michael the Archangel is Jesus Christ is another JW doctrine. And uh, as well, they had a doctrine that the millennium would start in 1975, and his 1977 is not that far off. So there was confusion. Yes, it was quite the confusing life growing up with all those quotes that left every topic open to interpretation depending on which tape you listen to. You could be a more liberal message believer one week and a staunch legalist the next, which is what my family pretty much was. <laughs> what I came to realize is he preached a different doctrinal viewpoint 
depending on what denominational church he was preaching at. And anyone can look that up. Uh-huh. Yeah. What I came to later learn was that Joseph Brenham was allowed to have his very own television in his bedroom growing up. And they all watched Westerns together. While on tape, television was strongly condemned. Why not take out his shotgun, as he said others should do, and shoot his own television? And then to find out that he went to the movie theater to watch Marilyn Monroe's smutty and half-naked movie, River of No Return, that was another appalling thing to learn. Where was the discernment of a supposed prophet to shun the appearance of evil that he himself condoned, condemned time after time on tape? One of my favorite quotes was that I'd rather you live me a sermon than preach me one because your life speaks so loud I can't hear your words. He certainly didn't follow his own advice on practically anything he preached against over the pulpit, from television to cutting his daughter's hair to allowing them to wear pants, sleeveless shirts, skirts above the knee, himself wearing shorts and mowing his lawn topless. The double standard doesn't seem to end. Seems do as I say and not as I live should have been his motto. I agree with you again. Um, my favorite story is is uh, William Branham saying that only sissies wore shorts. And then his daughter, Rebecca, published a picture of her dad in Africa wearing shorts. Like, that's not hypocritical? Absolutely. And by the time I was 15, I was so into studying the message that I created my own website with Branham quotes by topic. I did notice some inconsistencies at the time, and for some reason, I only kept the most strict set of quotes on any topic. My mother was one of those who wouldn't allow my friends to come over to play without them putting a skirt on. So I'd let them borrow skirts before they walked in the house, and they put a skirt on to come over. (laughs) So that's extreme, but that's uh, sticking to the message. Applying the token to your house, not letting all those things into your house, I guess. My brother's friend was also not welcome in our home until he took out his earring. (laughs) This is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I've been to churches where the women were not allowed to wear zippers in the front of their jean skirts or even converted jeans because they pertain to a man's garment. A jean skirt with a zipper in the front? Really? Women had better stop wearing T-shirts because that's mostly a man's garment. Socks. I mean, trench coats. You can, the list can go on. Many other things that are predominantly worn by males and stick to only wearing dresses. But then again, men and women were both made tunics by God to wear in the Bible. Those are considered dresses. I think the whole point is missed, that it's not about the article of clothing itself, but the distinction between the sexes that I believe God was trying to make a point about. And for a woman to not deliberately dress to look like a man and vice versa. Well, what you're talking about is where I see William Branham bringing Old Testament law into the New Testament church. And as we talked about on our podcast with James Rozak, this was not what Paul taught. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 5.4 that if we try to live by the law, then we are actually alienating ourselves, which means to cut ourselves off from Christ. Paul says trying to keep the law causes us to fall away from grace. But it, it is astounding, Carrie Ann, because what you're talking about is, is, is to some extent completely foreign to my experience with the message. So, Carrie Ann, how long were you in the message? Until the age of 30, off and on. I was a diehard message follower until the age of 19 when I found out a minister I had a, a lot of confidence in had committed adultery. I'd heard of many such big name ministers doing the same over the years which were quite shocking and quickly covered up. 
and sometimes caused church splits. But those didn't affect me as much as finding out someone I personally knew and had confidence in could do such a thing. That led to me falling away from the message for a period of about seven years. Since I just stopped living the message lifestyle without actually researching any of the controversies, I always had in the back of my mind that I'd marry someone in the message and eventually go back to it. Although circumstances in my life prevented it for it for those seven years. I was living in Massachusetts at the time, and I decided to leave my whole life behind after attending Brother Yancey's meetings. I had a great job, good friends, and a life I had built for myself over the previous four years that I just gave up. I gave it up to dedicate my life back to the Lord and, of course, come back to the message, what I thought was truth. Ten days later, I was talking to the Lord. You said in your word, it's not good for man to be alone, and you gave Adam Eve. Please send me my Adam. Send me my husband. Well, exactly a week later, I met my husband, whose name just happened to be Adam. Interesting coincidence. Yes. (laughs) He was not in the message when I met him, however, but I had faith that God would open his eyes to the truth, as we like to say. He did give his life to the Lord not long after and leave Catholicism after attending a men's conference a friend of his invited him to a few months after I met him. About a year and a half later, he picked up a Brenham Life storybook I had laying around and decided perhaps the message was true, being impressed by the supernatural miracles and sad life story that Brenham claimed. Yeah, it's really clear that William Brenham tried to make his life story even sadder than it actually was. And he definitely wanted people to feel sorry for him. So let's talk about some of the splinter groups that you had contact with, because I know you've had contact with uh, with with some subcults that are definitely strange. We've said on earlier podcasts that the message, in our view, is a pseudo Christian cult. Uh, Walter Martin gives a good definition of a cult when he says a cult is a group of people polarized around someone's interpretation of the Bible and is characterized by major deviations from Orthodox Christianity relative to the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. So the message is clearly a cult, but there are a variety of subcults within the message. Can you tell us a bit about the ones that you've had some experience with? Of course. Let me start with Stephen Shelley. I'm sure there are a lot of people familiar with him. When I was six years old, my father decided we should follow after his ministry. We moved from the Philippines in between our nine and a half years we spent there to live on his commune property he called Ezekiel's Wheel. They erected two small prayer chapels on the property that were open 24 hours a day. In these chapels were a few bins full of ashes along with a sackcloth cloak to drape over yourself while you prayed, kneeling in the ashes, and you're supposed to pour them over your head. Like in the Old Testament, that was that's that's bizarre. Yeah, (laughs) he was a self-proclaimed prophet who also claimed to have had an angelic commission, had his own life storybook, just like William Brenham. And what I would call he had the Brenham complex. After six months, we found out Shelley's life story was full of lies and mostly fabricated. Surprise, surprise. My father started questioning some things that were going on and went to find Shelley's father, who filled us in on the details. We lived in a mobile home on his 60-acre property in Smith Station, Alabama. We were actually among the first few families to have moved onto his property during the construction of his tabernacle and prayer chapels. He had numerous tent meetings with many supposed signs and wonders, discernments, healings, 
rolling on the floor, supernatural lights. I mean, that was a real holy roller church. That's what I would call it. I mean, they were lined up at the front every service. And one of my friends one day told me that Shelly told her parents we didn't have the Holy Ghost. And so we weren't supposed to be living on his Ezekiel's wheel, Holy Ghost property. When my dad confronted him and his deacons, that led to us getting kicked out of the compound for questioning Stephen Shelley, the prophet. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I heard a very bizarre story about Stephen Shelley, which I'm not sure if it's true, but it sounds strange enough to actually be true. William Branham had said on a tape, I think speaking rhetorically, we get to know one another so well till we can chew each other's chewing gum. That's real brotherly love, isn't it? That's real close communion. And apparently Stephen Shelley had a communion service. And in addition to the wine and unleavened bread, which you normally have in a communion service, he also took a stick of gum, chewed on it, course he was the first guy to chew on it and then had everyone in the congregation chew (laughs) on it as well as part of the community service i find it hard to understand how people can even tolerate such strange behavior wow yes that actually is one of the quotes i remember my mother bringing up to me and it is quite disgusting and unsanitary some people really do take his quotes a little bit too far that is so bizarre so were there any other message subcults that you experienced actually yes there is another one of Donald Parnell and the Third Testament Millennium Believers, who can back up every doctrine they have with Brenham quotes, another self-proclaimed prophet with a Brenham complex, and another claimed angelic commission. The main church my dad built in the Philippines, which was quite a large church, it's been taken over by Donald Parnell and his doctrines, which state that the rapture took place in 1963 when the cloud came down and we are now living in the millennium. The reason this doctrine even exists is because of William Brenham's own claim that the bride goes up in the rapture at the fourth chapter of Revelation and is not seen again until the 19th chapter. Which is a complete plagiarism from Clarence Larkin. And that's why a lot of his stuff doesn't fit together, because he would plagiarize Larkin and then he'd use some of his own stuff. And when you take it all together, it just doesn't add up. Yeah. And he actually changes it in, in different tapes from the third chapter to the fourth chapter. So... You know, it's a lot of confusion. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. If the seventh angel came down in 1963 and opened the seals, that would mean we were in between the fourth and 19 chapters and the rapture had already happened or the message in Brenham's claims of being the seventh angel messenger were false. Now, we can't have him being false, so we'll take the first choice. Keep in mind, every subcult within the message that I've seen, they all have supposed rampant miracles, lights, signs and wonders, along with a self-proclaimed prophet piggybacking off of William Benham's ministry and his claim to have someone coming along after him to continue on his ministry. And they have these quotes that they put out that, you know, they are the continuation of William Benham's ministry because he did have quotes saying that someone would rise up after him to continue it on. I began to see this pattern when I moved out to California with my husband. We're going to do a podcast just on the issue of the cloud uh, because it's clear that William Branham was never there. And a lot of people, particularly the stranger ones, like to use the uh, the cloud to justify certain things. And even William Branham's daughter, Rebecca, admitted in an article that she wrote in the Only Believe magazine on the cloud that it didn't happen, that he wasn't there. But in order to justify William Branham's lies about the cloud, his followers are now forced to say that he was in another dimension when he saw it, which is complete 
nonsense when you actually read what he said about the cloud. Message ministers often say that the strange people that the message attract is somehow proof that is correct. I never really did understand that line of reasoning, but there is no question that the message does attract a lot of people with bizarre beliefs and people that love conspiracy theories. I know of a number of people that were sucked into the Parnell cult. And in my view, Parnell is clearly preying on the weak. So besides Parnell and Shelley, experience with any other people like uh, the return ministry? Yes. We actually spent six months at Roy Carpenter's church in Mesa, Arizona, after we were excommunicated from Stephen Shelley's church. And he taught the return ministry doctrine. But I was only seven at the time and too young to understand any of it. But when I moved out to California is when I came back to the message at the age of 28. I came to the conclusion that I never got the revelation of the message until I began to hear their explanations of what they believed and why. Just before we began attending their church, my husband and I went to Barnes & Noble to buy a book about sales. The first book he picked up had a preface about the author's childhood and how he grew up in a Pentecostal-type cult. We continued reading until we realized he was talking about the message and the abuse he endured in it as a child. What we didn't realize at the time was that God was trying to warn us of what was to come. But we put the book back on the shelf and chalked it up to being the devil trying to scare us away. This church wanted to be sure to do everything exactly how William Brenham said to do things. They even had a gift room where people with supposed spiritual gifts gathered to speak in tongues and interpret. Just a few of their doctrines I'll share, which can all be backed up solidly by quotes, many quotes, included William Brenham being Michael the Archangel, him coming back from the dead to fulfill his tent vision, the change of bodies happening in the little room, which was supposed to be the third pole, him getting shot, him flying around in Evan Mosley's airplane with said tent, holding healing campaigns around the world, and him shooting the bear from another vision and the vision of the conversion of the people in Africa, all things that had failed. If it wasn't for all of William Brenham's failed prophecies, there would be no such thing as a return ministry church at all. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the return ministry folks are actually honest enough to admit that a number of William Brenham's prophecies failed. Yeah. But then their cognitive dissonance causes them to go so far into left field as to invent a scenario whereby William Branham has to come back from the dead to fulfill the visions. They simply can't admit that Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22 applies. And that has to lead to some other really strange things happening in their group. Yeah, there was a self-proclaimed prophet there named Raul who would go around telling everyone, God told me this and God told me that. And I had a vision about this and that. And he even had a little black vision book, just like William Branham claimed and could name what quote came from what sermon on what date. It was quite bizarre. Something just didn't sit right with me from the start, but I just sat back and observed and kept things to myself for a little while. They had my husband help with a sound system and record all their prophecies and transcribe them onto a website. So luckily I got, I had all these things written down. <laughs> so I saved them. I sent Raul's sister some quotes on GMO food being banned in Russia, along with an article, to which she responded with a snarky email. Raul then decided he needed to recruit the pastor and come to our home to have a talk with me because I offended his sister. Because he told my husband he had a word from the Lord for me. 
He told us he had a vision of me chained to a toilet and all kinds of other things. And that I shouldn't fear GMO food because all these curses were going to come on me and all this other stuff. But after they left, I was so livid because I I was like, I'm done with this guy. (laughs) And I sent him a message to explain the vision to me further to see what he would say. He said he would have to pray about it and he would get back to me later. Well, of course, that's convenient. Yeah. That Sunday after church, they had their gift room gathering in between services. And I had gone to the corner store with a pastor's sister. It was just the right timing by the grace of God. I walked back into the church to use the restroom. I overheard Raul begin to speak in tongues. And so I stopped and put my ear up to the door to hear what was being said. He started rambling on to my husband about the headship of the home and not allowing man-made interpretations to come through a woman, taking quotes out of context and that a seducing spirit had come into our home through me and that we needed to repent and for my husband to repeat the prophecy in my ears. Well, there was no need for him to repeat to me a prophecy I had already clearly heard myself. So that gave me a leg up in talking to the pastor. I was livid. I knew the guy was a false prophet and began calling everyone I knew who had said anything about him prophesying false things in an effort to get my husband to see the same. Apparently, he had been kicked out of three churches previously for false prophecies. But with me being pregnant, it was a highly stressful time for me. Yeah. And I was absolutely not going to raise my son in that environment and decided we needed to move back to Ohio. And actually, when we first moved there, the pastor's sister, she picked up a chair and threw it at the wall and punched a hole in the wall with her hand. This was a crazy emotional church. They were all about emotions, speaking in tongues, holy laughter, rolling on the floor, and you name it. Bizarre, yeah. Prophecy. They had about two prophecies every service and tongues, most of which were about William Brenham coming back. (laughs) So that was crazy. But so obviously really true. Yeah, right. (laughs) But when my husband told him, Raul, that we were moving, Raul told him he had a dream about me three weeks prior. In the dream, he said I was excited to go back to Egypt and the move was being influenced by a woman and that it was an Abraham and Lot decision. We had already rented the move, the moving van, and Adam was contemplating canceling our move because he had confidence in this brother, as did everyone else at the church. Well, I called another brother from Maury Carpenter's church, who they tried to get to move to their church since he had a gift as well. And he was able to tell Adam enough things to convince him that Raul was a false prophet and not to fear him within days of our move which led to us continuing on with our plans to move to Ohio. Wow, Carrie Ann, that is so bizarre. I can hardly believe that um, these things actually happened to you. It's just mind-boggling. We try to keep our episodes to half an hour, so I'm going to bring this one to a close, and then we can continue our conversation on our next podcast. Carrie Ann, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. And for all our listeners, please come back next week to hear our continued conversation 
with Carrie Anzovich. Thank you, Rod. If you'd like to send us an email, there is a link on the offtheshelf.life website, or you can email me directly at rod at offtheshelf.life, or you can reach Brian at brian with a Y at offtheshelf.life. On the offtheshelf.life website, we also have a comment section after each podcast. Uh, Some of the comments are starting to come in and we don't care whether they're good, bad, or you just, you know, you just don't like us. Anyways, just click on the title of the podcast and it'll take you to the page for that specific podcast. The comment section is at the bottom of the page. Have a great week, everyone. There may come that day when I hear you say that you too have been confused